Tonight, as we continue in 1 Thessalonians, I want to invite you uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to finish this, this uh, chapter, God willing, tonight. And as we look here, uh, we're going to look at one verse. And uh, we've been working almost at a verse per week uh, in the last three weeks. Uh, looked at verse 11 and 12 and 13. They all together are a prayer that the Apostle Paul had for this church in Thessalonica. And so throughout this prayer, we see that there's really some, some tremendous thing. And Paul continued his prayer. We find that he prayed that the church would really uh, just follow the Lord's leadership and follow God's leading in their life. And, you know, how, how much we need that today, that we would truly follow God's leadership in our life, in, in every aspect. You know, we're not just talking about missions or anything of that nature, but in everything that we do that we might truly be able to give praise unto the Lord. And then as we follow the leadership of God, we realize that the Word speaks plainly uh, to the need of obeying and following His leadership in every aspect, but also that the church would abound in a godly love. And we see here that this need uh, just was, uh, was so prevalent in this early church as they experienced persecution, that they would also have an, a, a, this, uh, this godly love that they would express even to those who were their persecutors. And God could use that in their life to, to really to bring transformation. And so, you know, it's just a, just a remarkable thing as we see that, that as Paul prayed through these things, First, that they would follow his leading. Secondly, that they would uh, go in and they would really abound in the love of the Lord. But also, that finally, that we see that he has desire, the end product, is they would be firmly established. And that's where we're at here tonight. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll read the first, uh, those last three verses there in chapter 3, 11 through 13. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for uh, this just tremendous portion of Scripture. Lord, we thank You for all Scripture. Lord, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we thank You that tonight we can trust in Your Word. Lord, we can lift it up uh, in our lives, in our church, in our families. And we ask, O oh Lord, that your word would penetrate even the hardest of hearts tonight. And that, Lord, we might see uh, families and individuals that would follow your leadership and then be, uh, be able to bound in the love toward one another. And then, Lord, to be able to be firmly established. Thank you for the reminder tonight of that glorious city. How much we uh, look forward to that day and we will see you face to face. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to the end of this section, we realize that hey, Paul really uh, is pointing them to something that's really important, and that's, that is the need to be rooted and grounded in truth. And as he says here, he says, and to the end that he may establish your hearts, he says, unblameable in holiness. And so he says that, that the result of abounding in the love of the Lord, the result of following Jesus Christ is that really we might be able to uh, be established in Jesus Christ. And, and that's our desire here. And he wrote later in Ephesians uh, to the book Church in Ephesus in, in chapter 4 and verse 14. He says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And so he recognizes and points out there is a tendency that if we're not rooted, if we're not grounded, that we can be tossed to and fro. 
And, and truly, we really need to be grounded in the Word of God. And I'm, I'm thankful for discipleship. I'm thankful uh, when people say, hey, I want to not just be saved, but I want to grow in Jesus Christ. I want to allow the roots of God's Word to penetrate my life so that I might be established in Him, that I might not be as a tree that's, that's uh, tossed about in every, by every wind of doctrine, but like that tree that's planted by the rivers of water, as Psalms 1 talks about. And so that's really what he's desiring here is for this church to become established in their life, to become established in, in the way that, that they ministered. And really that being established helps us to have the right kind of perspective as well. In Colossians in, in chapter 3 and verse number 2, we're encouraged to keep our mind on things above. He says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You know, it's easy on, on this world, on this world to, to be distracted by different things, to have, have things be able to, to, uh, to remove our affection of, the, of uh, the, the Lord and the things that are most important. And you know, as we, we consider that God says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, we realize that God says there's going to be obviously some things that try to draw our attention away from Him and away from godliness. And so you have to sometimes determine, I'm going to set my affections on things above. There was a, a royal housewife, her name was Faye uh, Inchfon. She lived a, oh, more than a generation ago, and she wrote these lines as she uh, looked forward to the, uh, to the presence of God. Sometimes when everything goes wrong, when days are short and nights are long, when wash day brings so dull a sky that not a single thing will dry, and when the kitchen chimney smokes, and when there's uh, none so old as folks, and when friends deplore my faded youth, and when the baby cuts a tooth, while John the, the baby, but uh, last but one, clings round my skirts till day is done, a fat, good-natured Jane is glum, and a butcher's man, a butcher's man forgets to come. Sometimes I say on days like these, I get a sudden gleam of bliss. Not on some sunny day of ease, but he'll come on a day like this. You know, I, I like to appreciate what she wrote here because it reminds us that it's not just any day, or it could be just any day that Jesus Christ comes back. And more than likely, it's going to be just a regular day. A day when we're not expecting it. A day when, when you know, we're going about our business and our, our attention is maybe distracted by all the problems of this world. And he says, listen, yeah, it, sometimes that's the way it works. And, and so as we, we consider all of that, I don't remember if I prayed to open us and to bless the reading of the word. So let's do that right now just to make sure we get it. And if, we do, if I've already done it, we'll double bless it. Amen. So y'all pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for just your goodness to us in our life. Thank you for the word which speaks so plainly to our heart. And Lord, for the power that is contained in your word tonight, help us to set our affections on things above. Help us, Lord, to be able to have that heavenly perspective in this temporal world. God, truth be told, Lord, there's so many things that vie for our attention, even tonight. Lord, uh, we think about sports, or we think about uh, the events of the week, or we think about uh, the cold that's coming tomorrow, and these things tend to have a tendency to compete for the attention that you deserve. So help us now, even in this, these few minutes, to hear from heaven, Lord, and not just hear from heaven, but respond to you. And then throughout our week, may we just have that great heavenly perspective. Thank you for the word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I want to see this last point tonight as we see that God calls us to firmly uh, have a life that is established. And, and so Paul comes back to this major theme. This major theme that throughout the book of Thessalonica, uh, it really is, uh, is something we're going to see again repeated in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And that's the theme of the second coming of Christ. He wanted the Thessalonians to emulate his example in just looking for the Lord's return. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to it more and more. And so, and this is what he says here. We're going to see first that first he wants us to be strengthened in holiness. And so once that point is there, then he sees that uh, we begin to see this point where he begins to point us toward that end. He says, to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. He has a desire that we be strengthened in this idea of holiness. Paul states as we follow Christ's leadership in our life, that as the Lord allows our love to grow in him, and that really a life that results is a life that's strengthened in holiness. But you know, we live in a time where holiness is not as vital and it's not as important, it's not as, uh, as lifted up as it once was. Now we have a watered-down uh, gospel and a lot of watered-down uh, church that uh, lacks the power that the God's Word says what we should have because we refuse to exalt holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to look there with me, we're going to read several verses out of 1 Peter. I want to remind you that even though the world blurs the lines of holiness, God still calls us to holiness. God wants you and me to be holy as He is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Really, one of the basic tenements of the Baptist belief is a willingness to separate from the world, a biblical separation. And Paul wrote later, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And so this kind of holiness comes about as men and women of God give themselves to strengthening holiness in their lives. Hendrickson wrote this. He said, The Lord by means of love strengthens the inner purpose and desires. Hearts thus strengthened will be less prone to crave the unseparated life, the life of the world. Rather, they will tend in the direction of the holy separated life so that trusting entirely in Christ and in His redemption, and having experienced the transforming influence of His Spirit, they will be blameless in a state and condition of holiness, which is separation from sin, consecration to God. And this is the very presence of our God and Father, that is, before His judgment seat. And so God calls us to holiness. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. Romans 14.10, He says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou not set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, a proper view of eternity helps us to keep focused on strengthening holiness in our life. And there's, there's really two things that the Apostle Paul points to this in, in this passage. Keeping in mind uh, these things will help us to keep our eyes on the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, God reminds us, be strengthened in holiness to the end that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Because I, I'm reminded that one day we'll stand in the Son's court. 
You know, think about this with me. Uh, there will be a day when we shall stand in the courtroom of God. And, and this is at this place it will be called the Bema Seat of Christ. And it's here as Christians, we will stand before Christ as He judges our life, not for the purpose of entering heaven as Christians, but for the purpose of rewards. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. This is what the Word of God says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And so it is here that we will give an account of our lives. Everything that, that things, the, from the words that we say, according to Matthew 12, 26, it says if Satan cast out Satan. Uh, that is not the right scripture. I believe it's Matthew somewhere. But it is, he deals with every... Every idle word we shall give an account. So forgive me on the, the, the scripture that's wrong there. But there's also going to be things that we do there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse uh, thir- 3 and verse 13. It says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And so as we think, if we think about this, standing before the Lord and having our life played out before us. It's a very sobering, has a very sobering effect on our life. But you know, our perfect example, Jesus Christ, He will be the one that sits at the reviewing stand. This morning we talked about Him being the sacrifice, but He's not just the sacrifice, He'll also be the judge. You know, the Bible says that He is, he is perfect, He is holy. And this is what John 5.22 says, For our Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And, verse, and, and later He repeats this again in verse number 30. But we remember that He lived His life with the same temptations that we endured, and even greater trials than we experienced. Let, let me just remind you that we think we've got it bad, but I, I really believe that Jesus Christ ex- experienced greater sufferings than we ever have. It was so severe that the Bible says that he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think that that was not a, a great time of trial, but what we see in, in Christ's life was that he remained faithful. And this is the testimony that Hebrews writes, Hebrews 4.15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in, in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Listen, he knows Jesus Christ knows all about your troubles. Like that old song, uh, He knows all about our troubles. He knows all about our trials. Listen, Jesus Christ, the perfect example, is the one who is, who is the, the qualified one to enact a judgment in our life. He's the perfect to judge. And into His hands, we will be committed that day. Now listen, there's some judges that sometimes we find out are corrupt judges, aren't there? Sometimes corrupt judges can be swayed by, uh, by money or some other I- event in their life or maybe there's a ransom or something of that nature. And, and we see that, that man, sometimes we, we're, we're human and sometimes we become, we become selfish. But what's amazing about Jesus Christ as the perfect judge, he judges in righteousness. He's not judging out of wrath. He's not judging out of anger nor self, selfish motives but he judges perfectly within the will of the Father. John 5.30 I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And may I just remind you that on that day there will be nothing hid. The secrets that we think are so great, the private areas of of our lives, It will be brought to light that day. Romans chapter 2 says in verse 16, In the day 
when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Those times of secret service when others don't seem to see when you're serving, those times when your labor goes unrewarded on earth, let me just remind you that, God, that our God promises that He sees. You know, when, when, though there may be no one that is able to say, man, look at that great work that, that you're doing, God, who never sleep, sees all things. And His promise is, is that He rewards us on that beautiful day. 2 Timothy 4.8 reminds us of this truth. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love is appearing. At this great arraignment, the works of the Lord's people will be reviewed. And we will be rewarded or rebuked. Some believers will appear before Him empty-handed and will see their life's deeds go up in smoke like wood, hay, stubble. Others will see their works come through as gold and silver and precious stones to be laid at the feet of our Savior. Amen. Man, it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Him. All the blemishes, the spots, the wrinkles of the bride that day will be removed. Rewards will be given. And each one's position in the coming kingdom will be determined. Remember that this is a judgment seat, not a mercy seat. It will be a sobering event, and it is inescapable for every believer. We don't know how long it will last. You know, we think about it, uh, you know, and we think about, and, I'll, and, and as we go forward in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'll put a chart on the screen and probably try to lay out for you some of the future events that he talks about in 1 Thessalonians. But, you know, we're not sure how long that judgment seat is going to last. During the, the, we know it's going to be during the time of tribulation on earth. But we're not sure, you know, because God's timing is, is amazing. Peter says it like this. He says, you know, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. What is time to an eternal being? It's irrelevant to him. Matter of fact, God sees past, present, future all at the same time equally uh, and, and knows it all. And so time, as it relates to God, moves not on a quite different plane than what we're used to today. And so as we live our lives, may we do so with the understanding that one day we will stand before the Lord. We will stand in His courtroom. It can be a day of great rejoicing, but it could also be a day of great regret. May we choose, as Paul wrote here, truly to live a life of holiness, a life established in holiness because we've dedicated our lives to His direction and have chosen to abound in love. Let's talk about real quick this last point, the soon coming of Christ. I'm looking forward to that day. There's, there's one, one truth in this prayer that probably is, is so exciting to my heart. He says, To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. And you know, as we consider that, there's a primary source of discussion for the Apostle Paul throughout the remainder of this book is the coming of the Lord. But there's three words, three Greek words associated with the second coming of Christ. The parousa, which has to do with the fact of the Lord's being present. Then there's the epiphany, which has to do with the Lord's manifestation of Himself, to the, uh, first to the church, 
as part of the parousia in the air, and then later to the world. And then there's the apocalypse, which is the unveiling of the Lord's glory to the entire world. And in this passage, the word that the apostle uses for coming is the word parousia. It is the presence of the Lord. He says, listen, allow yourself to be established in your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the, at the parousia, at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, won't that be a wonderful thing? And what we're talking, dealing with here is the first great coming of Christ. This is the first great act in the coming end times drama. It's called the parousia. The, the word refers not, uh, not only to the coming of the Lord Jesus, but also to His actual presence. It refers to the Lord, uh, Lord's immediate presence in the proximity to this planet. Literally, he's, He arrives in the air. This, the psalmist says, says it like this. Psalms 18 and verse number 9. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And verse number 11, the same chapter. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of skies. In this first phase of the second coming, we see the Lord descends uh, the stairways of the sky. He enters the environs of our planet, and He literally, he, we hear the shout, and the dead in Christ arise, and the living saints ascend with Him toward the sky. Won't that be a glorious day? Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Because we're reminded, it says in, in verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he says, And as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also uh, said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye uh, gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up for you, from you into heaven, shall uh, so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The same way he ascended, he shall descend again. And this will be a great time. The Lord says we will meet him in the air. We see the Lord arranges his judgment seat in a pavilion on the cloud, evidently. The Perusa is a secret meeting of the Christ and his church. It's not for the world, it's for us and the Savior. It is a cleansing time. It's a time where we're able to just be able to, to be uh, purified so that we can be pure and stand before him when we are able to be wedded eternally to Christ. The psalmist saw it in, as his secret hiding place. It's in, invisible, in other words, in darkness. The Lord ascended visibly before the astonished gaze of His disciples on the brow of Olivet, and then He was wrapped around with clouds, and they saw Him no more. He is to, uh, to so come in like manner. First, the Lord will descend, invisible to the eyes of men, hidden in the clouds. Later, He will burst upon the astonished eyes of men, and they will see Him whom they have pierced visib visibly and bodily descend toward the earth's service, accompanied by his saints, to deal with his foes. The period in between those is called the parousia. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also uh, which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. The parousia... This time that he's referring to here in verse number 13 is an important interlude in between. It is the raptured saints meet the Lord in the air. We're encompassed with clouds. This is our reunion. It is not in heaven and not on the earth, but in the air. The Old Testament caught a fleeting uh, glimpse of this as he wrote uh, in Isaiah chapter 60 in verse number 8. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? In a sense, the parousia is our ark, our shelter 
in the time of storms. Psalms chapter 31 and verse number 20. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. This is the heavenly hiding place of the true church. Where will we be kept safe from the judgments of the apocalypse? Listen, it will be a glorious meeting with the Lord. Revelation 13 and verse number 6, he says, And he opened his mouth, and this is referring to the Antichrist. He says, And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. The Lord's presence in the clouds signals the opening of his court. He begins that review of lives of his own, which he, we associated with the judgment seat of Christ. Indeed, judgment begins in very truth at the house of God. And so it, begin, it will begin with us. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And so as we consider this, we see the perusa of Christ runs simultaneously with the perusa of the Antichrist. Same word is used here in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. It says, Even him whose coming is after the work, working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And so simultaneously, the church meets the Lord in the air and the Antichrist is present on this earth. We recognize that we are preparing for the coming kingdom. We see that God has got a great, really for us as a church, we consider this first coming of Christ and we see the reason that he wrote what he wrote in verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Because at the perusa of Christ, we see that it will be a glorious time where we will stand before the Lord in his courtroom. But on earth, we will see the Antichrist appear. He will seize control of Europe. He will revive the Roman Empire. His, uh, he will sign his seven-year treaty with Israel. He will nod approval even at the building of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He will confront Israel's foes. He will seize the world. He will inaugurate uh, the great tribulation and march to Armageddon. All of that will happen while we meet the Lord in the air. Meanwhile, the perusa in the sky continues. The judgment seat will give way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the stage is set for the battle of Armageddon. And during the battle of Armageddon, both perusas will end. We'll see the clouds part. And every eye will see Jesus Christ in a blaze of glory. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I believe that even in this moment he will paralyze the Antichrist or consume him, as this word means here, here he, with, uh, with his brightness, with his glory, with his shining forth of his manifestation. It will be a glorious day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 8 says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with brightness of his coming. And Matthew 13, 43 says, Then shall the righteous shine forth, as the Son in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. 
The, Lord's, the Bible says in Zechariah, the Lord's feet will rest upon the Mount of Olives, Olives, and when they do so, it will split asunder. Zechariah 14.4 And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. You see, as, as, as Paul concluded this prayer and as he was praying for this church, we see that, that he was pointing to this prophecy that is still yet to await us. And as he goes on in the next chapter, he really begins to, uh, to illustrate some, some more of this, uh, this truth. And I'm just reminded so vividly tonight of the need for us to be prepared for that day. There was a story of a preacher who was driving through Louisiana. He passed cotton fields, and, uh, and as he was passing cotton fields, this was many years ago, he drove past a weighing station and the cotton wagons. It was very hot that day, and, and, uh, and the sun had just gone down, and the day was already you know, dying in the west, but he could see a, a small family of, of folks, a mother, a father, his family coming in from the field. They had picked cotton to the end of the row and were coming into the weighing station. They were bringing in their stuffed cotton bags to be weighed. The father was a, was a massive man, well over six feet tall. He wore no shirt and just a pair of khaki pants. and His, his, uh, his uh, skin glistened with the sweat and he had uh, slung over his shoulder a cotton pack that must have weighed easily a hundred pounds or more. He looked back along the row and, and the preacher could see others straggling along behind. Besides this man, his family were, uh, were also cotton pickers and short ones and big ones and little ones and young ones and old ones. And the preacher then began to think of the great men of the past, the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, D.L. Moody, Spurgeon, Finney, men who had preached thousands to thousands of men. And, and at the time, the preacher uh, friend was still a, a young man to the ministry. And, and he compared himself unfavorably with these great preachers of the past. And we truly, we can do that sometimes. And he looked down those long cotton rows and, and he saw those cotton pickers just seemed to, to, to represent the great soul winners of the past. Some with their great big bundles and some who were smaller and they still had bundles. They were 20 or 30 yards behind the others. And, and back in the way in the back, he saw this little bitty boy and he couldn't have been more than three feet tall. And he had a little cotton bag and he just a little bag just full of cotton. It was a little flour sack. And he had about five pounds of cotton maybe in that little bag. And the preacher could see him bobbing along back there. He'd been in that hot sun all day. He'd been picking coffee and he'd been working hard just like everyone else had. And the young preacher, as he saw this, he was reminded. We may never be a Jonathan Edwards. We never, may never be a Billy Sunday or a D.L. Moody. But we can be like that little boy in the back. And we can just pick up those, the, those souls one at a time and just continue to work hard until the Lord calls us home. And be reminded that one day the sun will go down and we will arrive at the judgment sheet, seat of Christ and we shall stand there before Him and we shall in truth be finished with our work on earth. The important thing now to remember is to be faithful through the burden of the heat of the day not to give up but to put something in our sack, something of value. Now that little boy could have put it, filled that sack full of rocks. He could have filled it full of meaningless things. And we can sometimes fill our life full of things that are meaningless and worthless. 
But here's the truth. It doesn't matter how big your sack is. Finish the race God's called you to, finish, to run. Are you ready to stand before the Lord that beautiful day? Are you ready to hear from the mouth and the lips of our beautiful Savior? Well done. Perhaps you need to go back to the beginning and say, Lord, direct my way. Maybe we need to go back to point number two. Lord, Lord, help me abound in the love of Christ that I may be established in holiness.